We're in Galatians this week. Um, last week, Andrew brought us back, and we heard about the freedom that the gospel brings. And Andrew quoted uh, something from uh, Jay Packer. He quoted, Have you been holding back from a risky, costly course to which you know in your heart God has called you? Hold back no longer. Your God is faithful to you and adequate for you. You will never need more than he can supply. And what he supplies both materially and spiritually, will always be enough for the present. And that quote is really relevant for what I think God wants to say to us today. So we're going to go back a bit in Galatians chapter 2 to verse 6. And uh, going to look at this verse. And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favourites. Now, when Sean was preaching about this, it um, seems months, well, it is months ago, <laughs> um, I, I remember saying to him, oh, great, you've got God has no favourites. And he looked at me with puzzlement in his eyes. And obviously, God had not spoken to him about that at all. But to me, that was just what came through. Uh, God had given Sean something different to talk about, but this is what came through to me. God has no favourites. So the background to this, in case you've forgotten, is that there's been conflict in the church in Galatia because some influential people had come and they were teaching that Gentile converts needed to obey certain aspects of the law. In particular, they needed to be circumcised. That's the men, of course. Now, Paul was horrified by this, and uh, he went to Jerusalem to make sure that all the leaders of the church there were in agreement with him that it was only Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection that was necessary. Just believing in Jesus was all that was needed to be saved. And this little snippet that God emphasized to me was, in fact, just an aside from Paul. He was saying it didn't matter how important those leaders were in the world's eyes. To God, they were no more important than anyone else. Those leaders were none other than James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church. Now, if this were the only place in the Bible where we could read this sort of statement, perhaps it wouldn't be so important. But the theme is woven throughout the history of God's people and through his word. There are a few verses in the New Testament where favoritism or favorites comes up. In Acts 10, uh, Peter said, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. And that was said in the context of um, being called to the house of Cornelius, preaching to the Gentiles and seeing God pour out the Holy Spirit on them. Against the Jewish tradition, God had blessed the Gentiles. And then in Romans, Paul wrote, uh, this is the beginning of this, is there will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for God does not show favoritism. In other words, it didn't matter whether you were a Jew, you were important. If you do what's evil, you will be judged by God. It doesn't show favorites. And 1 Peter, Peter wrote, Remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in the land. So it matters our response to God, the context is, are we living a good life before God? Are we honouring God? And in that context, he has no favourites. 
those are examples of where the, the word favorite is used, but there are many examples throughout scripture of how God used ordinary people. Um, if you can remember back to the summer, to the story of Moses and the Gruffalo God, which I still can't forget, uh, God's people were slaves in Egypt, and Moses, uh, although brought up in the Egyptian courts, was on the run. He'd murdered someone, he'd run away, and for 40 years he'd been working as a shepherd. And then God appeared to him in the burning bush and told Moses he would set his people free through Moses. But Moses made excuse after excuse. He said, who am I? I can't go. And then, who shall I say sent me? What if they don't listen to me? I can't speak well. And finally, he told God to send someone else. Moses was a murderer, a runaway, and yet God used him. Even though Moses did his best to get out of it, God has no favorites. And then there was Gideon. Back in the time of the judges, the Israelites had been serving other gods and as a result had lost the favor of their God. And they'd been defeated in battle. Their enemies, the Midianites, burnt the Israelites' homes so that God's people were living in caves. The Midianites stole their crops as they harvested them. So Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. Uh, I don't know whether you can see in the picture, he's sort of down in a ditch. If you've ever seen wheat being threshed, uh, there's a whole cloud of dust that happens. And the place to be standing is somewhere where the wind can blow it away, not down in a wine press where the wind can't get. So Gideon was hiding. Not an obvious choice for a commanding officer for God's army. But then an angel appeared and said to Gideon, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I'm sending you. But Lord, said Gideon, I can't go. How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. I'm not important. I can't do it. Well, after a bit of toing and froing, Gideon did as he was asked, and he did rescue God's people from the Midianites. He was even asked to rule over them, which he declined. And you can read the rest of that story in Judges 6 to 9. So God used Gideon, an unimportant, scared young man. Then come to the story of Jael, who I call the tent peg lady. I love this story. I don't know whether any of you uh, know what I'm going to say, but it's a very strange story. This was even earlier in Judges. And someone called Sisera had fought the Israelites and won. And for 20 years, he'd harassed them and oppressed them until eventually the people of Israel called out to the Lord for help. Now, at that time, uh, there was a prophet called Deborah who was uh, judging the Israelites. And one day, she heard from God, and she sent for Barak, who was sort of in charge of the fighting people. And she said, God wants you to summon 10,000 warriors. I'm going to summon Sisera, Sisera had 900 chariots and a lot of men. Deborah said, I'm going to summon them, and God is going to give you the victory over them. Well, Barak wasn't feeling very brave that day. And he said he would only go if Deborah went as well. So Deborah agreed to go, but she said, you won't get the honor in this battle. That will go to a woman instead. Well, anyway, Sisera, with his 900 iron chariots and all his warriors, marched to the meeting place. And Barak turned up with his 10,000 warriors, and they had a battle. 
And when Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. And Barak chased and killed the entire enemy army except for Sisera, who leapt down from his chariot and ran away. He ran and ran, and he eventually found the tent of one of the Israelites. And in the tent was Jael, who was the wife of Heber. Heber's family was a friend of Sisera's king, so Sisera thought he would be safe there. Jael went out to meet him and invited him into her tent. She gave him something to drink and stood guard at the entrance to the tent, till eventually Sisera fell asleep out of exhaustion. Then Jael quietly kept up, crept up to him with a tent peg and a hammer in her hand, and she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and so he died. So God used the most unexpected warrior, a woman, to defeat the chief of the enemy's forces. So moving into the New Testament, let's take a look at Jesus' disciples. There was Matthew. He was a despised tax collector. Tax collectors were thought to collude with the occupying Romans. They often cheated their fellow countrymen. They were not looked up to at all. Then we have Peter and James and John. And Andrew, fishermen, not the most prestigious occupation. And yet they were called. And also not known as an occupation of having well-educated men within it. Then we come to Simon, the Canaanite, who was a zealot. A zealot was someone who was a revolutionary seeking to overthrow the Romans. He, they would try to whip up enough enthusiasm from the people to riot and bring the Romans down. Simon took that enthusiasm and brought it under the control of Jesus. But he wouldn't have been my first choice as a follower. We don't know the occupations of all the other disciples, but we do know that there wasn't a Pharisee or a Sadducee. There were no important people among them. They were just ordinary, everyday people. But these were the people that Jesus called and spent his time with. These were the men that Jesus used to build his church. Luke 7 tells the story of the immoral woman. All her neighbours regarded her as immoral. We don't know why. Imagine she was a prostitute, but we don't know that. And a Pharisee had asked Jesus to come to his house for a meal. And while he was there, the woman came in, and she brought some expensive perfume, knelt at Jesus' feet, and wept so that her tears fell on Jesus' feet. She wiped them off with her hair, and she kept kissing his feet and put perfume on them. The highly respected Pharisee, Simon, was shocked that Jesus even allowed this woman to touch him. He thought to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he'd know what sort of woman she was and wouldn't let her touch him. Jesus responded to Simon's thoughts, told a story about forgiveness, and pointed out that the immoral woman had looked after Jesus in a way that Simon had not. Jesus said to Simon, when I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, though they're many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. 
And then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Jesus accepted and appreciated the woman, although she was an outcast because of her lifestyle. It was her devotion to Jesus that counted, not her background. God has no favorites. This immoral woman contrasts with the interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler. And when Jesus confronted him and said, you need to sell your possessions and give to the poor, he couldn't do it. He was unable to give up his lifestyle to follow Jesus. And Jesus remarked it was very difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Not impossible, but difficult. For instance, after Jesus had been crucified, one rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, went and got Jesus' body and buried it in his own tomb. That must have taken some courage. It probably cost him a few bribes. By contrast, there was the widow who put just two mites into the offering. Very little, but all she had. And Jesus commended her. Rich or poor, it makes no difference to God because he has no favorites. When Jesus was crucified, there were two criminals crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. One mocked Jesus, the other asked for forgiveness. And Jesus said to the one who asked for forgiveness, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise, because God has no favorites. So what? Where am I going with this? I hope that the stories I've told you have convinced you that God has no favorites. We often think that he does. Surely those who are up front, the public figures, the evangelists, the church leaders, surely they are more important than just ordinary, everyday people. Surely those are God's favorites. But it isn't true. What's happening is that we are transferring our respect, our feeling of awe, or our inadequacy, we're assuming that God is like us, preferring the people with great ministries to the ordinary people. But that's not what we've discovered this morning. We've discovered that God uses ordinary people, even when they think they're not worthy enough. Many years ago, I had a friend called Silvana. She was great fun. I loved being with her. She was Italian, and she had four children to look after, and she had a great faith in God. One day, she told me that an evangelist was coming to stay with her, a Mrs. Foster, a lady who had a wonderful ministry, uh, preaching, and people were saved and healed. I was excited at the thought of meeting such a great person. I thought, maybe some of this greatness will rub off on me, and maybe I'll be able to do this stuff. But when she came, she treated my friend appallingly. She expected to be waited on hand and foot, and her companion was the same. Mrs. Foster came and went without saying what she was doing. She'd just turn up and expect a meal to be prepared. She was a nightmare house guest. And I realized then that God uses people, even though they're not perfect, and important people were not any better than ordinary people. They just had a higher profile. One day, Mrs. Foster will have to stand before God and give an account of all that she has done, the good things, the, the healings, the salvation, as well as the way she treated my friend. God has no favorites. He loves Mrs. Foster and Silvana equally, and me and you. What is always important to God is how we respond to him. 
we read that King David was a man after God's own heart. And the context of that, the verses surrounding that say it was because David was obedient to what God wanted him to do. So just one more story. A story that Jesus told. The parable of the talents. So in this story, a master went on a journey and he gave his servants some money to invest while he was gone. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. The servant with the five talents invested it and made five more. The servant with the two talents invested it and made two more. The servant with the one talent was worried about losing it, so he buried it to keep it safe. When the master returned from his trip, he was really pleased, and he said this, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Now, do you know who he said this to? Did he say this to the servant with the five talents who made five more, or the servant with the two talents who made two more, or the servant with the one talent who kept it safe? Does anyone know? You can answer this question. The one with two? Both. Okay, yes, Mark, thank you. He said it to the servant with the five talents and the servant with the two talents. Exactly the same words are recorded by Matthew. So it didn't matter that the one with five talents had made more than the one with two talents. All that mattered was that they had used what they had been given. And the one who'd not used what he'd been given incurred the wrath of his master. So let's summarise. God has no favourites. He'll use anyone who is willing. Moses, a shepherd in exile and a murderer, someone who was full of excuses. Gideon, who said, I'm not important. Jail, the tent-peg lady. The disciples who didn't have an important occupation amongst them. The immoral woman. Rich or poor, it makes no difference. Even criminals are accepted. God uses all sorts of people to do his work. People like you and people like me. So what is God asking you to do at the moment? What is it that you, comes into your mind when I say that? Maybe share your faith with your colleagues or invite a neighbour to church. Maybe you're being challenged to tithe your income for the first time or to forgive someone who's harmed you or to bring a contribution on a Sunday morning, a spiritual gift here today or next Sunday or maybe in life group. And that's really where I want to focus now as I finish up. Bringing spiritual gifts because None of us are God's favourites. Those people who regularly speak, who regularly bring something, they are not God's favourites. We are all part of this body of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, we can read, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. There's a list there. It's not a complete list, but a list that says wisdom, knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, ability to perform miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, and interpretation. It's the one and only spirit who distributes these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. And each person, it keeps saying each person. 
There aren't gifts for the important people and not for the unimportant. Each person is given something. We are all part of Christ's body, and he gives these gifts in order to strengthen the church. When we meet together, Paul says, let's, let's bring stuff. One will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given. One will speak in tongues, and another will interpret. But everything that is done must strengthen you all. So my question to you today is, are you withholding something that God has given to you that the church can benefit from? Does God bring things into your mind that you're not brave enough to bring, to give out? Don't be like the servant who had the one talent and who buried it, didn't use it, and incurred his master's anger. Be like the servants who used what they had been given, heard their master say, well done. In a minute, we're going to have communion, and after that, we're going to go back into worship. And I just want to encourage you, if you feel that God has given you something to bring today, don't rule yourself out. Don't say, I'm not important enough. I'm not clever enough. I haven't been in this church long enough. I haven't learned enough about the Bible. Don't rule yourself out. Remember that God has no favorites. He uses all sorts of people. And Nathan and Jess will help you if you're unsure how to share what God has spoken to you. We don't always understand what God gives to us. I remember years ago having a dream. It was a weird dream. It was a dream in which I was in a room where someone had a baby, and I delivered this baby, and the baby was like a baby but had an adult's head. And I just got this baby and then gave it back to the person who delivered it. I had no idea what it was about, but usually with what God gives you, you can't forget. So I puzzled about it for some weeks, and eventually, I, I told someone. And they said, well, it's obvious what that's about. And told me an interpretation of the dream. Well, yeah, it was obvious once someone else had interpreted it for me. So maybe what you have is a picture that makes no sense to you. And maybe someone else will understand what the picture means. Or maybe if you ask God, he will explain to you what the picture means. How do you know? that it's God speaking to you and not too much cheese last night. <laughs> the difficulty is that we don't always know. But I find if something's going on and on in my mind, I can't, uh, is it from God, is it from me? I usually say to God, God, if it's not from you, make me forget it. And I find that's, that gives me comfort. I think, well, it's up to God then. If it's still here, I'll do something with it. So try that. But if God's putting something in your mind, maybe it's something, a word just for someone sitting next to you. Maybe it's not for the whole church. But don't withhold it. Use what God has given to you. Just going to quote that, uh, that quote from Packer again before I finish. Have you been holding back from a risky, costly course to which you know in your heart God has called you. Hold back no longer. Your God is faithful to you and adequate for you. You will never need more than he can supply. And what he supplies, both materially and spiritually, will always be enough for the present. So don't hold back. Go for it.